Andrew Balpert, the Kingdom of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, not only making his Monday appearance on a Thursday due to scheduling conflicts, but also making that appearance from a cold and echoey room that he's just packed up to move himself and his family from Winston-Salem to Oregon, managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest in this edition of the program. As he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. Of particular note this week, the Los Angeles Dodgers depth. How and why a club that features the highest payroll in all of baseball is currently being propped up by a player who was not in affiliated baseball last year. And the year before that, was it high A? Andrew Tolles. Andrew Tolles is this mysterious player and no longer mysterious player about whom I speak. Anyway, he's been quite good and he's reflective, or perhaps not, but probably reflective of the Dodgers' approach to player acquisitions. Moving on, the pitch talks conferences are something in which Dave Cameron has been involved this summer. There was one in Boston, one before that in Toronto, perhaps, or after that in Toronto. And most recently, there was one in San Francisco. It is a lively event in which Dave Cameron participates, has participated, one about which I ask him. Lastly, and also uh, quite possibly leastly, Dave Cameron reflects on the organizational rankings that Fangraphs attempted about half a decade ago now and the weaknesses which lay therein. It was the kind of thing that I think, like, the concept is fun, but the quality of information that we were able to get became diminished to the point where it was not clear that what we were doing was actually correct. Or probably incorrect, actually. The wide-eyed glance at the site's failures and others just like it to follow. What's following most immediately, however, is a message from the sponsor. The sponsor is SeatGeek, SeatGeek.com. For the sort of person who's ever experienced any combination of work or hassle attempting to purchase tickets, the sponsor's message is relevant to you and your experience. What SeatGeek does, and which other sites do not do, is to aggregate tickets that are available all over the internet into one convenient place so the customers are able to locate the best prices for those events that they'd like to attend. Even better, what SeatGeek does is to give a grade based on value to every ticket, making it easy for customers to exploit the inefficiencies in the ticket-buying market. And of course, no mention of SeatGeek is complete without citing the quality for which they're known all throughout business, the business world, the capital B business world, and that's their honesty. SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price, like StubHub. What SeatGeek does is to show customers the full ticket price from the beginning to the end of the transaction, never assessing any fees or mysterious fees. For having endured this message, Fangraphs Audio listeners are entitled to a rebate. Here's how to claim it. What you do is you download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter the promo code Fangraphs, that's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S, F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code Fangraphs today for your nearest possible convenience with which utterance sponsor's message is complete and so is almost the entirety of the introduction what is it it is fangraphs audio who does the feature managing editor of fangraphs dave cameron in a hollow empty room and when does it begin right now How close are you to your microphone? Because I'm getting some of the room. I'm, I'm pretty close. I will, I will note that my the room that I'm sitting in is is filled with boxes and you know stuff. So it's 
it's a little more cluttered than usual. Okay. Would you like me to that, change rooms? I can change no, rooms. No, it's fine. You're fine. Okay. You also just have a funny voice. Yeah, that uh, I can't help. I can't I change voices. Okay, listen. Pitch Talks, San Francisco, you were present at it. Yes, I was there. You're a participant. Yes. These have been going on, what, during the summer? Yeah, I mean, they've been going on for a few years, but this is the North American tour, because it's, you know, Pitch Talks based in Toronto. Uh, it was started out as like a kind of a Blue Jays get-together, and now it's expanding around the country, or around another country. And what, have you been president at all of them so far? All of them, no, no. <laughs> no, no, I mean the, the, the ones this summer though. Uh, I didn't get to go to Kansas City, so that one I missed, uh, but I went to Boston, and then I've gone to San Francisco, and then uh, a few weeks I'll be in Chicago. And then okay. I was in Toronto earlier this year for one of the, the hometown ones. Who else was in attendance in San Francisco? Uh, so, a lot of people. Uh, the panel that I was on was moderated by Jonah Carey, friend of the, friend of the site, friend of the podcast. Yeah. Uh, then myself, Eno Saris, not necessarily oh, a friend God. of the site, but employee of the site. Uh, not a friend. He's an enemy from within. That's, that's what, right, you have yeah, to keep really. your enemies. <laughs> a total traitor. Keep your enemies uh, closer. Wendy Thurm, former Fangraphs employee and definitely a friend of the site. Uh, and then Grant Brisby, who uh, I don't know if he's a friend of anybody, really. He's a pleasant, he's a know, pleasant I man. Like Grant. We spent actually a decent amount of part of the, uh, of the panel making fun of him for looking like Christian Slater. Which is a weird thing to make fun of someone for, considering that I think Christian Slater generally considered to be a good-looking guy. Yeah, I think um, at least part of his career, if not all of it, has been based on that. Yeah. I haven't seen that new program, Mr. Robot, although I understand it's pretty good. <clears throat> From your review of the Pitch Talk event when it occurred in Boston, I believe, yeah. suggested that it was perhaps a slightly... Um, um, more, not raucous necessarily, but uh, certainly livelier event than um, some of the other sort of um, analytically oriented um, sort of uh, gatherings that occur. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And this one was more raucous than the Boston one. Uh, so the crowd was pretty fired up. We had 300 people uh, at the Independent, which is a uh, kind of rock venue. Apparently, you know, seen a bunch of bands there. Um and so it was a pretty packed house, and uh, you know most of them were drinking, and so they were uh, they were loud and boisterous. And I got booed when I made a joke about Ryan Vogelsong getting hit in the face of the line drive, uh, which I actually I expected laughs, and then I got like unhappy responses, uh, which was a little surprising. But yeah, it was, a, it was definitely a louder crowd. I think uh, uh, Ray Ratto, who's a uh, works for uh, Comcast Sportsnet in the Bay Area. Um, he was on the Beat Writer panel before us, and he got people, I think, a little riled up because uh, Rado's a pretty funny dude. And it kind of set the tone, and um, it was definitely a, a lot of feedback from the crowd, which was great. I, uh, my experience of it is, and this is purely anecdotal, is that uh, the San Francisco fans tend to be one of those markets which um, tend to have – uh, strong reactions to pieces uh, about their team when they appear at the site. There's no question that a few years ago, Giants fans and Fangraphs had a bit of a contentious relationship, I think, because uh, back in the Brian Sabian days when they were making questionable moves, but then they would win anyway. So, like, you know, they signed Barry Vito and then win the World Series. But, um, I don't think Giants fans particularly liked Fangraphs back then. I think some of that has been 
has gone away now that Brian Sabian's not necessarily the top decision maker or, you know, at least is deferring to guys like Bobby Evans and, um, they're not signing Barry Zito as often anymore. And so they're doing, uh, things that are a little bit easier to, to explain. Um, so I think, uh, the relationship between San Francisco fans and kind of the analytic community has improved, but there's probably still some people who remember, you know, the Giants getting ranked, I think, was like the 27th best organization uh, in in baseball. Uh, was in like 2009 or 2010 when we did the org rankings. Um, and there might be some lingering hostility from that. And then proceeding to to win the World Series, I believe. Yeah, was, I, think, I think they won the World Series. That year, that, right? That's what ensued. And that might have been the last org rankings we ever did. Yeah, right. Well, I think that the conclusion was that it was difficult to account for the entirety of an organization's health. Yeah. Yeah. It was the kind of thing that I think like the concept is fun, but the quality of information that we were able to get became diminished to the point where it was not clear that what we were doing was actually correct. Right. Or was probably, probably incorrect actually. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Do you think you mentioned that the the sort of uh, relationship between any fan base and uh, the analytical Community and I guess in this particular case, Fangraphs might serve as a proxy for that community. Uh, in the sort of posts that appear at the site, do you think that? Do you think that way to in, uh, inspire the wrath of a fan base is both to make uh, some statements to the effect that the team is probably not as good as um, as they as the win as their winning percentage would suggest, and then also. Um, to have no, no. Wait, what is the order of events? It's to say they're probably not that good, but they're winning in spite of it. Yeah, that's definitely the fastest way. So, like this year, the team, the organization, or the fan base that hates us, is the, or me specifically, I guess, but yeah, us in general, is the Texas Rangers, who are outperforming their base runs by like 175 wins or something. Uh, I think by most of the um, kind of standard measures of. Talent, the Rangers are roughly a 500 team, but they're 24 games over first, uh, over 500 in first place and probably going to win the, uh, AOS by a decent amount. And so Rangers fans are, uh, 100% convinced that wins and losses are the right way to evaluate their team. Just like Baltimore Orioles fans were a few years ago when they pulled the same trick and went 29-8 one run games. Uh, and I think, uh, I was actually happy Rob Arthur of 538 published a piece yesterday, I believe, uh, pointing out kind of, you know, the, how the Rangers are winning and why it's unsustainable. So he might have taken some of the flack from us, at least now. Uh, so I'm I'm excited to see uh, Rob Arthur become the new villain in Texas. Uh, he, yeah. Rangers fans, so, go yell at him instead. Didn't the – well, it should be said wins and losses are good – or wins are uh, good for evaluating how your team has done. I mean, they're definitely the goal, right? Like you yeah. want to win games, so they're, right. they're exciting. Yeah, I suppose it's hard because um, our they, our human brains are. Uh, I mean, in some cases uh, they're brilliant, right? They're in, in uh, but in other cases they do they go some way towards making life difficult for us. And I think there's something that can happen, and I can uh, only speak of my own experience here, but perhaps it's instructive to some degree. Is it sometimes difficult to hold in one's head? Uh, well, see, I I say to myself, I want this team to do well. And I also see that they have done well. So my natural, it's, it, and it's this blurry area between what I want to be true and what is true 
is I I want to say this team is good mm-hmm. as opposed to they have won a number of games. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I suppose that that um, we also now the Rangers did something like this last year as well, didn't they? Yeah, not to this extreme degree, but this is the second year in a row now that they've significantly outperformed their kind of expected win loss record. They did it in a very different way last year. Um, I think last year they just scored a lot more runs than kind of their underlying, uh, you know, kind of batting line would suggest. This yeah. year, it's not so much that they're scoring more runs, it's that they're just sequen- they're just, they're timing those runs at the best possible opportunities. So they're just winning all their one-run games, basically. So um, both of them are different kinds of kind of like clutch performance, but it's not the same clutch performance year over year, which, you know, at some point you'd have to say, okay, if they're doing the exact same thing two, three, four, five years in a row, then this looks like a skill. But to have, like, a different kind of skill at, like, outperforming your base runs is uh, it's a little... It, I think the reality is the data just shows that this is basically not predictive at all, and teams that do this don't continue to do it, which is generally the easiest way to identify a skill is if you can keep doing something. So, um, you know, in the Rangers' case, whether 30 and 8 in one-run games, that would be the best mark in baseball history in one-run games. No team has ever uh, won this percentage of one-run contests in a season. The Baltimore Orioles in 2012 went 29 and 8 in one run games, so almost the same. And then the next year they went 20 and 31 in one run games. So um, there's just no real evidence that this is the kind of thing that teams can continue to do, and um, fans don't like to hear that. Wait, here's a question: Is the team? I should know this, um, but perhaps I've been working under false uh, with false information um, or false memory of the real information. Is a team's record? In one-run games, most likely to be either a 500 or b um, just what their base runs record would others otherwise suggest it would be. It's actually closer to 500. So okay. mo- most teams congregate right around a 500 winning percentage in one-run games, regardless of team quality, because a one-run game uh, is just so random in terms of its outcomes. The teams that tend to, like, if you were going to say, here's one thing that will allow you to generally outperform by a little bit, it's bullpen, right? So, like, this is kind of one of the Royals things the last couple of years, and obviously um, the Orioles in 2012 had one of the best bullpens of all time, is if you have really good lockdown relievers, you will end up doing a little bit better in one-run games than expected, uh, based on just, you know, if we assume that every team was going to perform the same. Um, but no, there's no possible way to explain the Rangers being 24 games over 500 with their run differential by bullpen. Okay. And their bullpen uh, isn't that great, to be honest. It's fine. It's not a disaster, but it's not great. We uh, we began this conversation discussing pitch talks, and I yeah. would, I'm going to return to pitch talks in a moment. But discussing the Rangers uh, reminds me as well that uh, they play in the American League West, which also is the division which the Angels play. And, of course, the Angels employ – a number of players, um, uh, many of whom are not the sort that you'd want on a championship caliber squad. And then one, uh, Mike Trout, who almost uh, unto himself is a championship caliber squad. I know that uh, Paul Swiden wrote recently about uh, with regard uh, with regard to some of the rule changes, maybe that Ro- Commissioner Rob Manfred uh, was considering, and uh, Paul suggested that maybe uh, it might make sense for the commissioner uh, and other executives to dwell less on the faults with baseball and more to celebrate um, 
some of the game's strengths, um, which is, which is, uh, I suppose, you know, I'm sure he does that anyway, but, uh, Paul said that, that perhaps one way of going about that would be to market individual players a bit more aggressively. And I'm curious, you're a different person than Paul Swyden. Uh, is there, is there a way, do you think, to, to do, to emphasize more marketing one players or because maybe the way that the game is structured is that, is it difficult? I think it's hard. I mean, so I was in San Francisco for a couple of days this weekend. I have a lot of family in the Bay Area. Um, many of them are sports fans. They're not necessarily diehard baseball fans, but they are big Warriors fans for obvious reasons. Uh, and they pay attention to the NFL and like they're, in general, they watch Sports Center or like they're not sports ignorant. Uh, relatives. And I had to explain to them who Mike Trout was, and they had no idea. They'd never heard of him. Uh, and I think the reality is if I was going to try and, like, sell them on, you should watch a baseball game because there's this superlative player who's, you know, the Mickey Mantle of our generation, or that's actually starting to become, like, an insult to the Trout. He, like, might actually be better than Mickey Mantle. Maybe the Willie Mays of his generation. Um, there's this historically great player. Uh, you should turn in and watch a three-hour game you're going to watch Mike Trout take four at-bats. Each one's going to last about two minutes. So you're going to watch Mike Trout hit for eight minutes. Most of that's going to be like standing around in the batter's box waiting for pitches. He might swing five or six times. He might put a couple balls in play. You might see him run. You might not. And then if you watch the whole nine innings, you'll see, I don't know, two or three balls hit his way, most of them routine. Um, you're just not going to see anything that, like, is all that spectacular, right? Where if you watch a football game or a basketball game, like, hey, turn on the Warriors game and watch Steph Curry, Within five minutes, you're going to see him hit a crazy shot, right? Or like do something that you can't do. Um, we can't hit 95 mile an hour fastballs, but but it's not so obviously apparent watching a game that Mike Trout is amazing. He's really appreciated, and most baseball players are appreciated over the long span of being a little bit better than everybody else for a very long time over a 162 game season. In the other sports, you watch, you know, some kind of athletic feat of accomplishment, and you say, "Wow, that's amazing! I can appreciate that that was a remarkable." Performance. Um, I think marketing individual baseball players is a challenge because when you're trying to kind of market them to casual fans, their excellence is not so obvious on a daily basis. Is it maybe more likely that uh, if you're going to market a player that a pitcher might make sense? Because, uh, you know, much like maybe a, a, a scout or someone like uh, Eric Longanakin, who is a lead prospect analyst, um, some, uh, might choose a game knowing that they're going to be good position players, but also knowing that it's going to be started by one or two uh, notable prospects. Yeah. Is it therefore, is it all, in the same way, is it easier perhaps to market pitchers? Because you know that uh, if Clayton Kershaw starts, if Jose Fernandez starts, then in that particular case, you're going to get at least six or seven innings of that player and uh, greater focus. Essentially, like you're controlling their usage rate um, you know, like you would in basketball. Yeah, but I think, so there's like a structural problem in that like especially casual fans want to see exciting action and pitchers are the resistance to action, especially really good ones, right? So like, who's the best soccer player in the world? Uh, you know, Leo Messi is a really good okay. one. Who's the best goaltender in the world? <laughs> right? You have no idea. Like, well, you, might, you mean it's, I mean, it's soccer probably Peter Czech or okay. something along those like, lines. I mean, Peter Czech, the best goaltender in the world, is anyone as excited about watching him as Leo Messi? No, right? No, no, but I would suggest it. But there are still crazy pitches, right? Like I would I think it's still arguable that uh, watching, you know, like watching Kenley Jansen's uh, cut fastball, for example, 
or watching Jose Fernandez do most things like you or Noah, Noah Syndergaard when he throws a 93 mile per hour slider. Like those are, you do get a sense of awe. They, no, no, no. Hey, Cameron, Cameron. Yeah. I'm going to contradict you here. That's fine. You're wrong. So you go ahead. <laughs> I think pitchers, uh, pitchers are, yeah, they do create something. They're not merely now. Let's see. What would be an equivalent? I mean, maybe like a great defensive player, although I would even argue then that you're still able to see some sort of athleticism, like that Billy Hamilton catch the other day when he ran, what, is like 115 feet or something? Right. That was an amazing play. That was an amazing play. But are you saying that you, that you draw, objectively, you draw just as much pleasure from watching, like, Vintage Felix Hernandez's changeup than watching a goalkeeper stop uh, a well-struck shot. What I'm suggesting is that the people that could be marketed to, as Paul was talking about in his post, of like let's get more people to celebrate the greatness of Mike Trout, are not you and me, right? So like mm-hmm. inherently, if you're talking about marketing the superstars to casual fans, you're talking about people who care about action and scoring and runs. And one of the biggest complaints against baseball and against soccer is that they're low scoring affairs where not a lot happens over three hours, right? So if you're talking about trying to get them to enjoy the sport, I don't think you can convince a casual fan that a 93 mile an hour Noah Syndergaard slider is something to be appreciated because they don't have a scale of what a normal slider looks like. Unless you have like a reference point and you can be like, oh, that Clayton Kershaw curveball was more exceptional than some other curveball. You only know that by watching all the other curveballs. But those aren't the people who are going to need to necessarily know and be educated about Mike Trout. I'm thinking about like if we're going to market the sport yeah. Essentially, I think you have to do it around hitters because hitters. Now, listen, I'll, I'll be clear. I don't. I don't. I'm of the opinion that this sport doesn't need to be marketed. And and guess what? If baseball dissolved, I think that the world would be defined. Well, that's, I mean, I'm, that's true. But I think Paul's point was to like grow the game, right? And so I think if you're going to grow sure. the game and you're going to bring in new fans, I think you have a much easier time selling a David Ortiz than you do. Uh, yeah, Kershaw. Because David Ortiz can hit the ball 500 feet, and you don't have to have any knowledge of baseball to know that that was impressive. Right. No, I, yeah, that makes sense, I suppose. I mean, I, I'm not sure if anything you say truly makes sense, but uh-huh. uh, in this particular case, you've at least bordered on sense. Yeah, sorry. Um, sorry about that. No, I know. I know. I'm trying to... Well, why do people watch baseball, then, who... Um, I guess because we're talking about the idea of the casual fan. What about what about um, uh, showmanship? Because typically in baseball, probably especially relative to something like basketball or uh, football, there is uh, probably less in the way of showmanship. Right. So um, I think like the Jose Batista bat flip home run last year in the postseason was kind of the perfect example, right? That was about as showy as baseball gets. And immediately there was controversy and uh, <laughs> and like half of the players in baseball calling Batista a jerk and being like, that's bad for the sport. So I think it is challenging to kind of market that and say, look, come celebrate how awesome baseball is when the people who are, you know, acting like kids act when they do something awesome are immediately shamed for it. Where, yeah. You know, like, obviously in the NFL, they've got whatever in sportsman conduct and they're trying to crack down on taunting, but you're allowed to at least like celebrate your accomplishments. Well, I would also argue that in, in the NFL, and maybe it's true of, of other sports too, the NFL, while 
while they uh, make they have sort of rules designed to crack down on um, personal celebrations, those are also the clips that sell the sport exactly. when you know those are what uh, people watch on Twitter and on YouTube and right exactly yeah. So, out of yeah I think that there's probably um there there's a what speaking out of both sides of the mouth is that a thing people say yeah that is a thing that people say and I think what's interesting is like obviously in baseball you have a significantly whiter population than you do mm-hmm. in basketball uh, and probably more so than in the NFL as well. Although I guess every lineman or almost every lineman's white, so maybe there's a lot of white guys in the NFL too, uh, but not necessarily the skill positions. Um, so you have like a little bit of a culture difference, right? Where you just have like a lot of tradition tied to baseball that's uh, also kind of tied up to Southern white culture and hunting, and you know, like a, a lot of a lot of baseball players don't have the same kind of enthusiastic upbringing in terms of how they celebrate and how they go to church and just kind of the same attitudes toward the celebration as, uh, you know, other cultures. And so I think that's something that baseball is struggling with, especially now there's a large Hispanic population in Major League Baseball and they have a much more boisterous celebratory culture. Uh, and how those two things get along is not something that I think baseball's figured out. Yeah, it is true. Uh, yeah. And it, well, I think even in, uh, Japan too, the, um, uh, certainly I, who do I follow? Oh, there's a really great, uh, Twitter, Twitter feed to follow, which is something like KBO. Well, anyway, it's a Korean baseball league and it's basically, there's bat flips all the yeah, time. They bat flip like crazy over there. Ste- steady diet of bat flips. Um, uh, yeah, we've gotten here by mentioning the pitch talks for one moment. Uh, do you care? Do, what, what do you, what did, what came out of your mouth when you were there? And, and also the other mouths of the people on your panel. Uh, well, we mostly talked about the Giants. I mean, that's, you're in San Francisco, you're gonna talk about the local team. Um, so we spent a decent amount of time talking about, uh, you know, what, why Dave Rigetti was a genius a few years ago, and if he is, he's still a genius now that Matt Cain is bad. Uh, or was it just that we attributed genius to Dave Rigetti because we didn't actually know how to explain guys who didn't give up home runs for several years? Right, uh, well that whole, wasn't it like, basically all the pitchers in the rotation were running, uh, uh, home run rates on fly balls considerably uh, below league average. Yeah, I mean, it's been a couple of years trying to figure out, like, have the Giants figured out how to pitch at the top of the strike zone without giving up home runs. It looked to be true, and now it looks to be less true. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, when they had Linscombe and Kane pitching at top flight, Dave Rigetti looked really smart, and now that those guys are older and not good, he looks less smart. Um, and I think that's one of the interesting questions of baseball is, like, who gets responsibility for what? Who's causing what? How do we define cause and effect? How do we now make sure we're not just mixing up correlation and causation? Um, and I think that's still a little bit of an unanswered question. Um, and then there's just like general baseball discussion, uh, questions about stats, questions about um, kind of where we see baseball going. It was a, it was a fun panel. And I think uh, um, the, the one before us, the beat writer panel with Ray Ratto and Andrew Beggerly and Alex Pavlovich and Jane Lee was also wildly entertaining. And then the show closed out with Jonah Carey doing a live podcast, which eventually will become uh, downloadable on on podcast networks with uh, John Miller, the broadcaster, and Bobby Evans, the team general manager. And uh, I would encourage you to listen to the podcast, if only for John Miller crushing Jonah Carey <laughs> after Jonah uh, asked some question of Evans about like uh, how he considers team chemistry and roster construction and whether he looks for 
leaders when he's acquiring players. And then he turned to John and was like, I'll rephrase the question for you after Bobby's done with it. And Miller does a great job of like shaming Jonah for acting like he didn't know how to answer the same question and he wasn't up. He needed like a dumbed down version of the question. So watching John Miller just destroy Jonah in public was a highlight of my life. Yeah, that would be, uh, that'd be fun. The, um, uh, now you mentioned there's quite a bit of uh, talk with regard to the Giants. Of course, uh, there is another major league team. Yeah, we didn't talk uh, about within, the A's much. <laughs> yeah, within miles. Uh, and a team that's, of course, interesting in its own right, if not as successful uh, this year. Um, so, but there wasn't much talk about Oakland. But Jane Lee was the A's beat writer for MLB.com was on the beat writer panel. So she was asked some A's specific questions. Um, mm-hmm. but I don't actually recall our panel talking about the A's at all. Did you, did you expect to, or did you just expect nothing in particular? I mean, as far as we know, the A's don't have any fans, so I wouldn't think that they would have come to our event. It was definitely, I mean, like, the event was in San Francisco, the Giants GM came, the Giants broadcaster came, it had a San Francisco slant to it, it wasn't necessarily billed as, like, a Bay Area pitch docks. Uh, I would assume there were some A's fans there, and I apologize for ignoring your team, but I mean, I also don't know what interesting questions you ask about the A's right now, besides, like, what are they doing? Do you, you know, uh, there are probably different ways to figure this out, but um, through a uh, proprietary methodology, not really proprietary, through just one little trick of math, uh, the Giants at the moment f- feature uh, probably the least certainty with regard to the postseason of any team in the majors. In other words, um, we know less about what their season's going to end up as. Yeah, right. Like essentially, their their chances of winning the division, the wild card. Or doing neither of those things, they're like basically all the same. Yeah. Um, they, it's a, it's very unclear. They, uh, it's, uh, they were leading the Dodgers for some time. Yeah, they had a great first half and a terrible second half. Right, and I think that, but I don't think that they ever. Um, it's possible they did for a short time, but uh, if my if memory serves, they never um, passed the Dodgers in terms of our projected standings. No, our our projections still really like the Dodgers a lot. Right. Yeah. Despite the fact that, as you pointed out today, with regard to um, star outfielder <laughs> Andrew Tolles yeah. of, the, of the Los Angeles Dodgers, uh, the they have basically an entirely different outfield than with which they started the season. Almost an entirely different roster. I mean, like if you look at like the team that we thought they were going to have going into the season, what the rotation was supposed to be: Kershaw and Alex Wood and Scott Casimir and Kent Ameda and. Hinjin Ryu with a little bit of Brandon McCarthy thrown in there. And the current rotation is like Ross Stripling and Bud Norris and Rich Hill when his blisters not bothering him. And, uh, I don't know. Who else is in that rotation? Julio Urias? <laughs> like, it is, uh. This, Rock Stewart? Uh, yeah, Rock just Stewart made a, start. a few starts. Uh, yeah. probably see Jose De Leon at some point in September. Um, yeah, the team that they're winning with is not the team we thought they were going to win with. And guys like Andrew Tolles, and um, I think really the story of the Dodgers, besides like Corey Seager having an amazing year, um, is kind of that they have gotten remarkable performances from guys that I think they probably were not counting on getting great performances from. Although it should be said that that if if that um, if the Dodgers received criticism uh, this. Preseason and perhaps into the season itself, uh, it was that they were not uh, being aggressive enough with regard to the pursuit of star players, um, and instead uh, looking to create, um, looking to gather depth instead. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's so this was an organizational decision essentially to like let Zach Greinke leave and reallocate the money around, and I think you know they have to be pretty happy with how you know kind of their spread the wealth plan has worked. Howie Kendrick's been a good player for them. Chase Utley's been a good player for them. Mado's pitched as well as Greinke basically. Um, so I think that their kind of you know let's go for depth plan has paid off uh, in some ways. In other ways a little bit less so. Um, but I think overall, this is basically what the Dodgers were hoping for is, you know, let's overcome injuries if they happen to us by having, you know, two, three, four good players or at least passable players at every position. Um, and I think uh, overall, you have to give the Dodgers credit for kind of going that direction, even in the face of criticism. On the other hand, I think we also have to look at, like, they signed Andrew Tolles to a minor league contract last year because Andrew Friedman and Gabe Kapler had, you know, a little bit of a relationship with him from their time in Tampa Bay when they drafted him. But they did not sign Andrew Tolles to a minor league contract last September after he sat out a year in baseball and said, in 10 months, this guy is going to be playing an important role for us. Like, this is an outfitter sat out a year after spending, this, like, topping out Mayball. Uh, sometimes you just get lucky. <laughs> and I think with Andrew Tolles, the Rays are just, or the Dodgers are just getting lucky. Yeah, well, uh, that's also one thing that happened. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that you said the, the the comment you had, and this this of course I'm sure has something to do with the the depth they've had and uh, some of the luck associated with that depth. But you said that this is not the team the Dodgers expected to win with. Um, I I feel like if you're a team that's focusing on depth, um, then that's then that's a more possible. That sentence might is is more likely to be true than a team. Like what? Like recent Reds teams, right? right. Um, like recent Reds teams, which even when they were good, they were still based off of a crop of very strong players right. and then some probably less inspiring role players. And so you probably like, so once Vado got hurt and if, if Bruce was hurt or, or ineffective, Todd Frazier maybe, yeah. there was the likelihood that they would have been winning with the players you wouldn't expect. That was lower. I mean, no question. Like, the Stars and Scrubs teams uh, are screwed if their stars go down, right? And I think, like, we've seen this with, like, the Detroit Tigers last year, where they have, like, Miguel Cabrera and J.D. Martinez and Ian Kinsler and Justin Berlander and, like, really good. And then it's like, oh, we have to start our number three starter, and then we have to go to our bullpen. And, oh, we're hitting, you know, like, Jose Iglesias second in the lineup because, you know, like, they just have, like, a significant problem when it comes to their role players. And I think the smarter teams have realized that uh, depth is important and you're going to lose baseball players. It's a 162-game season. It's a very long season. And I think, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if baseball headed more this direction and the Stars and Strokes model kind of fell out of favor a little bit. Uh, the last thing about which I'll ask you before um, the child joins the, po- the podcast. Uh, He's currently is, uh, coming over to say hi. Yeah, the – is uh, uh, about uh, Yohan Mankata. Yeah, he's pretty good. He, he well, okay, so yes, he very likely is pretty good. He's been rated, he's been ranked the the top overall prospect, still rookie eligible by I, I'm guessing multiple outlets. Eric Longenegan suggested the same thing in a piece about Mankata today. Um, he also is a player. Uh, so his physical tools, I think, are beyond reproach. Is the idea? Yeah. He also is striking out over 30% of the time right now or has uh, struck out over 30% of the time at double A, which is um, typically not um, a positive indicator uh, for, for a player. So I guess I'm curious, first of all, uh, what are your, uh, what are you, what is your sense of Mankata right now as a player in say, uh, 
future value. Yeah, but I don't think Mankata is going to be a great hitter in September. Uh, but I do think when you have that kind of speed and athleticism, potentially you could be a valuable role player, part-time player without even hitting at a high level. And I think mm-hmm. uh, sometimes we see the guys who just have overwhelming talent, uh, you know, make adjustments pretty quickly. I think it was like Manny Machado a few years ago came up, wasn't really performing all that well in the minors. You weren't going to look at Manny Machado and be like, oh, this guy's going to crush it. And then he was the Orioles' best player in very short order. I think it's not completely unreasonable. I think the Mankata could do something like that. I wouldn't expect it. I wouldn't. Like, say that's the, the norm. The Red Sox should think they're just about to add a Manny Machado. Um, but I think Yohan Mankata has the kind of talent where if he, you know, pulls an Andrew Jones and hits a bunch of homers in the playoffs, we're not going to be like, wow, who could have seen this coming? Right. So it, it, is there a, has there ever been a study to suggest, I mean, you, you bring up um, Manny Machado. Do we, do we know, uh, has, has it ever been borne out uh, empirically that players who have been praised for – their superior athleticism, that they are likely to uh, adapt more quickly or or beyond expectations. To, um, they're able to essentially cover up the what what appear to be the weaknesses in their game. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if we've actually seen that empirically proven. Um, this might just be us talking out of our rear ends without data and like mm-hmm. just making stuff up. But it does seem like there are guys like so. Trey Turner might be another example of this, right? Like uh, he wasn't. Rushing AAA pitching this year, but he's an extremely good athlete, and you know he was striking out probably a little bit more than you'd like um, for a guy who's not a big time power hitter. And he's struck out a decent amount in the major leagues, but he's kind of uh, excelled and been an excellent player for the Nationals anyway, just because of his physical skills. It does seem like if you're a guy with that kind of speed, with that kind of athleticism, then maybe you can get by with a little bit of unpolished, um, you know discipline of the, of the, at the plate or kind of strike zone knowledge um, because you have something else to fall back on versus if you're Jose Altuve or one of these guys where it's basically like, you know, um, limited physical skills and you're going to have to get to, you know, superstardom um, by learning how to control the strike zone and, and make your swing perfect. That might take a little bit more time. But haven't we proven that? No. And I think we're probably um, – we don't probably don't have any more evidence that this is true than the reverse. So – um, I would not hold to this as like something I absolutely believe, but it makes sense logically. And finally, can you summarize, uh, both for my benefit and also just for the program, the um, the misnomers and the actual truth regarding eligibility for for postseason rosters? And is I mean, because this this applies to Mankata in particular, because I think there was some confusion as to whether he would be available or not. Yeah, so basically if you're in the organization on August 31st, you're eligible. That's the short version. Um, so Mankata was in the Red Sox organization. He will be eligible to play in the postseason for the Red Sox, even though they didn't call him up officially until today, September 1st. Um, anyone who was acquired yesterday uh, is now eligible to play for their postseason team. So that's like, what, like Michael Bourne? Yeah, or Fernando Salas, if the Mets somehow make a crazy run. <laughs> like There were a bunch of like minor trades yesterday. All those guys who were traded for are now eligible to play for their postseason teams, even if they haven't played a game for that team yet. Um, you just have to be in the organization on August 31st. All right. Well, that's all it is then. My house is shaking for some reason. I don't know what it is. That would be called. Oh, maybe it's the dryer downstairs. Oh. No, I don't know. I'll have, to, I'll have to ask my wife why the house is shaking. What? That's the washing machine. I've been told it's the washing machine. Uh, would you like a new washing machine? We're trying to get rid of ours. No, um, 
No, we, in fact, we moved this specifically from our last home. It caused a bit of a rift between my wife and I. Yeah. No, we've mended it, though. We've mended the rift. Anyway. Did she want to get a new one? The house that we bought had one, but it was it was a it was a much older model. Right. So you wanted to bring and, your one with you? No, I didn't want to bring him because the the prospect of moving a washing machine was not appealing to me. Okay. Even with someone else doing it, because I still had to put in those stoppers right. behind. Yeah. But wait, why are you? Why are you? The house why you Oregon already has a pair, and, right? Uh, and, and we don't want to move them either. So. Are they nice? They're nicer than the ones we have. Yeah. Wait, can you just give can you just give it to whomever's moving into they your house? They don't want them. No. Oh. Just put it up for free on Craigslist. Uh well I I don't want to like give them away. They're worth some some amount of money. No. I would like to sell them. I uh, that is what it is. So listeners, if you are hearing this podcast and want to buy my washer and dryer, that's weird. Um but also if you have anyone in the Winston Salem area who wants to buy my washer and dryer, let me know. Yeah. You didn't you're not gonna use Craigslist? Uh, I, so I think the trick is that, you know, we're here for another week, so I kind of want to control the timing of the pickup, so if it's yeah. like a friend or someone who I can be like, yeah, just come next Wednesday before the moving truck comes, that's great, but if I put it on Craigslist and someone's like, I'll be there in an hour, then I don't have a washer dryer for a week, that would suck. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. All right, well, Cameron, you have, uh, uh, from, from an empty room at your house. Not empty, filled with boxes and actually a hedge trimmer. Okay. Well, there you go. From from somehow, um, uh, somehow, and even was spiritually and more spiritually empty. Yeah, that's probably true. Than an empty room. Yeah. It sounds like. Uh, uh, you fulfilled your obligations. Thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. That has been managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.